Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Christian theology has a long and at times contradictory history, riddled with tensions that make it difficult, if not impossible, to develop a single systematic account of what Christianity is. However, rather than see this as a shortcoming, one can instead try and see this as a productive philosophical and spiritual starting point. This is the animating idea of A Theology of Failure, published by Fordham in 2019, by Marika Rose, which argues that failure should be welcomed as a core element of Christian identity. To make sense of this, her book wanders its way through the Neoplatonic philosophy of the mystical theologian Dionysius the Areopagite, the radical orthodoxy movement, postmodern theology, and finally works its way to the philosophy of Slavoj Žižek, who has put failure at the center of his own theoretical work. The result is a book that takes a number of twists and turns, wrestling with the shortcomings of various thinkers, while still maintaining fidelity in spite of, and perhaps at times because of, failure. Marika Rose completed her PhD at Durham University, and is now a senior lecturer in philosophical theology at the University of Winchester, and has authored numerous book book chapters and articles covering the intersections of philosophy and theology. So, Marika Rose, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, so we always like to have guests uh, introduce themselves. Um, So can you maybe tell us a bit about uh, who you are and what your research tends to focus on? Yeah, so um, I'm a lecturer in philosophical theology at the University of Winchester, and my work mostly takes place at the intersection of, uh, I guess, philosophy of religion, continental philosophy of religion and theology. Um, yeah, so the book that we're about to talk about focuses particularly on um, Zizek, on continental philosophy and its relationship to debates about uh, negative theology. Um, I'm currently working um, on some uh, kind of related projects about um, angels uh, through a kind of political theological lens. 
Excellent. So before diving into the book itself, I want to frame it with some broader problems you seem to be wrestling with, namely the intersection of theology and political economy, and more specifically, the way theology has often been complicit in various ways in which marginalization has been enforced along certain lines. The book wrestles with both the emancipatory potential of Christianity as well as its instances of complicity with power. So can you maybe speak to this tension you find and how this book is intended to wrestle with this? Yeah, um, I guess in lots of ways my thinking has been quite shaped by liberation theology, which wants to see Christianity as a kind of liberating and emancipatory force, but um, my feeling is that the more you pay attention to the the role that Christianity has played in uh, political power and violence, the more difficult it becomes to maintain a kind of sense that the essential core of Christianity is liberatory. Uh, if that were the case, why would uh, the history of Christianity in the world be the way it is? Um, and so I guess I've kind of gotten interested in um, what's the relationship between the elements in Christianity that do seem to, to ground kind of radical or emancipatory movements um, and how do they relate to the elements of Christianity, which also seem to um, produce various different kinds of violence. Um, and I guess I was particularly interested in um, a, a move that I think is made from various different places in the theological spectrum, um, both from uh, more liberal forms of Christianity, uh, more political forms of Christianity, and also from more conservative forms of Christianity. Um, I think partly as I moved uh, away from a kind of relatively conservative evangelicalism into wanting a more kind of uh, liberatory uh, politics. Um, it struck me that actually a lot of the moves that were being made were very similar, and particularly the desire to find a kind of uh, essential core of Christianity um, that is the, the the real essence of Christianity. And if you can find this real essence of Christianity, that lets you disavow all of the bad things that have been done by Christians in the name of Christianity uh, in ways that are entangled with theology. So you get, you know, you get a kind of uh, various liberation versions of that. Maybe you want to see Paul as the reason why Christianity has been patriarchal. Maybe you think if we go back to Jesus and ignore everything that came after that and the kind of institution building and the compromise with empire that we find a God who's on the side of the poor. But actually that's a, a really similarly structured idea to the sense I grew up with in evangelicalism that, you know, uh, you have to go back to the the Bible to find the kind of true meaning of the gospel uh, and you can discard then the history of Christianity. So I guess I'm kind of interested in the way that that, that narrative crops up in lots of different ways uh, from people who I feel more or less close to. But this idea that there is a kind of essential, pure essence of Christianity that is just the the good stuff that we like and all of the other things we can kind of disavow and uh, not have to take responsibility for. To develop this a bit, you've mentioned before that you find Zizek productive to engage with because he is often wrestling with fidelity to communism in the shadow of failures and atrocities committed in its name. And in a similar way, you are wrestling here with fidelity to your faith, even while taking seriously its history of horrific crimes against others and various forms of hostility and complicity with the powers that be all the way up to the present. So how does thinking about the centrality of failure in Zizekian thought in the history of communism help you wrestle with the question of faith and fidelity to something with such a problematic history, as you said? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess just encountering Zizek for the first time, it, it seemed to me that that was one of the kind of animating forces behind his work. What does it mean to feel an allegiance to communism uh, and to grapple with that uh, in the face of the ways in which that supposedly emancipatory project um, failed very badly in different ways over the course of the 20th century? Um, and so, yeah, it seems to me like there's a kind of structural relationship with a question that was for me very important when I started the project, which was, uh, how can you continue to be a Christian and to be faithful to the Christian tradition uh, without uh, flinching, without um, refusing to recognise the ways in which Christianity has been a force for incredible violence in the world? Um, what does what does fidelity look like in that context? Um, how do we think about these traditions that have caught hold of us in some way? Um, and what does it mean to to really take seriously the things that have gone wrong um, uh, and kind of unflinchingly confront the way that the things that we find difficult um, or dangerous about a tradition are often much more difficult to disentangle from the things that we value than we would like to acknowledge. So to dive into the book itself, uh, the book kicks off with the claim that theology has failed, and this idea animates much of what you do. So I'm wondering if you can start just by unpacking this claim. Yeah, so I guess the central argument uh, of the book is that um, any uh, ethical project, any identity, any attempt to tell a coherent story about ourselves or the world we live in will always fail. Um, and uh, that really the question is how we relate to that failure. So do we respond to... Uh, the failure of a tradition to be consistent, to live up to the standards it sets itself by wanting to find the reason why it, it has failed so that we can fix it. So you're kind of constantly pursuing this dream of a coherent, harmonious, uh, unfailing thing, uh, I guess, in terms of theology, like how could we find a form of Christianity that wouldn't be bad, that wouldn't do these bad things? Um, but a more uh yeah but and and in uh Zizek's uh Lacanian terms that would be uh what what Zizek would describe in terms of desire um that's very much bound up with kind of how we come into the world as subjects um as uh people who are always a bit outside of our own control you know some of our first experiences as as we're born as very small children is are of uh living in a world that we don't control of having desires we don't control of uh being bodies that uh escape us um and so you can respond to that by wanting to have control by wanting to have harmony by wanting to find the thing that will satisfy you um or you can take the more productive and interesting route which is to see that failure that uh necessary inconsistency internal contradiction and antagonism as actually being uh, what constitutes the world that we live so not just something to be escaped or um, overcome but something to be grappled with something to be enjoyed something to uh, confront uh, ruthlessly um, and to see uh, change and uh, life emerging from those contradictions and those failures so to turn to the book more specifically, the first major figure you turn to is the Neoplatonic theologian Dionysius the Areopagite, who tried for good and ill to synthesize Platonic philosophy with Christian theology. 
And this ended up setting the stage for much Christian theology afterwards. And for you, it sets up some key tensions or problems in much theology. So as a way into the book, can you give us a setup of some of the key issues or tensions that are established here? Yeah, so Dionysius is commonly held to be one of the people who is responsible for bringing together uh, Neoplatonism and Christian theology. So as uh, Christianity increasingly becomes uh, a religion of Gentiles, um, as it increasingly seeks to become respectable in a kind of Hellenic uh, world, um, it increasingly engages with the philosophical traditions around it. And the one that comes to be, in lots of ways, most determinative for Christianity for uh, centuries, if not the whole of the rest of uh, Christianity's existence, is Neoplatonism. Um, and so uh, at the heart of Neoplatonism is uh, this idea that um, everything begins in this uh, single unified principle, the one which uh, comes in Christian theology to be understood as God. Uh, so uh, the source of all being in which um, uh, there is no distinction, there is no materiality, um, nothing imperfect. So, uh, and that, that things emerge from this uh first principle um, by a process of division, uh, by a process of becoming increasingly material. Uh, so becoming more uh, separate, uh, less uh, complete, um, more material. Um, and so what you find in Dionysus is this understanding of creation as this process of the emergence of things into increasing multiplicity and difference and materiality uh, from God. Uh, and then understanding redemption as the return of all things back into this one source um, of all being. Um, and that sets up various different problems for theology, um, partly because one of the um, central ideas of a lot of classical Christian theology is that creation is good, uh, that God made the world and that that was a good thing, that it wasn't the result of something going wrong. Um, but when you start to see creation as a process of things becoming ever more different from and uh yeah, ever more different from both one another and also the source from which they come. Um, and you also see um, evil as a, a lack. Um, so you often find it, we find in Dionysius this kind of privative notion of evil, that evil is not um, an active force in the world. It's a lack of goodness. It becomes very difficult to distinguish uh, the created world uh, and the emergence of the created world from God um, from a process of falling. Because if uh, things become Things come into being by coming to lack certain qualities that God has. Uh, human beings don't have the divine simplicity. We um, have uh, bodies, which um, for Dionysius is all about being kind of distinct from things around us and from the world. So we've we've become less like God in order to come into being in the first place. Um, and when evil itself is lack, it becomes very difficult to distinguish between creation and fall, essentially. Um, and so you set up these tensions around wanting to affirm that the world is good because God made it, that God chose to make it, that it didn't happen because something went wrong. And yet this sense that insofar as things are different from God, they are less good, they are inadequate, and um, in ways that often shade into thinking about them um, as actively evil. Um, and so a lot of the history of uh, the Christian tradition, I think, is kind of trying to grapple with uh those conflicts and antagonisms around how, around how we understand the nature of things and um, how we understand the goodness of the created world um, of our bodies. So much Christian theology, including many of its mystical variants, have been picked up recently and developed in continental philosophy. 
So from here, you turn to Jacques Derrida, who was himself not a theologian, but did engage a lot with religion and has in turn been engaged by theologians. So to start off this more kind of intersectional study, you look at Derrida's thought on topics like language and nameability and his adaptation of apophatic theology for philosophical purposes. So can you unpack what Derrida was getting from this tradition? Yeah, so one of my central arguments in the book is that that what happens is you move from the uh, hegemonically Christian world of medieval Europe to the modern world. One of the things that happens is you get a kind of reorientation of uh, some of the central problematics of for thinking about what the world is, for thinking about what human beings are, um, and where um, medieval Christianity, in part in the wake of Dionysius, is, is organised around this idea of the great chain of being. One of the central problems is, is how does the world come into being? Why is there something rather than nothing? How do things emerge from God? What does it look like for things to return to God? So the kind of central problem for a lot of thought is uh, how to think the difference between God and the world and to make sense of the fact that the world both comes from God and is meant to reflect certain characteristics of God and yet is also qualitatively different from God who is not uh, a part of creation. Um, so that, that that's the kind of central problem for a lot of classical Christian theology. How do we think the relationship between the world and God? Um, and what happens um, with the advent of modernity, um, starting around, um, I guess, kind of Descartes, um, is you start to get a transformation of that problematic so that increasingly the problem is not how do we think the relationship between the world and God, but how do we think the relationship between the individual subject and God? Um, how do we think about the relationship between our consciousness of ourselves and our knowing of the world? Um, how do we think about uh, our um, activity in relation to the world? How do we think about people who are um, other than us? And so a lot of... Um, classical theological problematics and get questions that have previously operated primarily to help us think about this relationship between the world and God get kind of turned on their side and become a question of how do we think about the relationship between the subject and the world? Um, so rather, how can the world, which is created by God uh, and is radically distinct from God, know God? We get this problem of how do we as individual subjects know the world, um, which exists outside of us, which uh, we can't get a kind of God's eye view of. So how do we think about that relationship? And so um, one of the, the questions that, she, that, sorry, that Derrida um, returns to uh, is about the relationship between the subjects in the world and specifically the way in which the relationship between the subjects in the world is mediated by language. Um, how does language shape our knowledge of the world? Um, how does our knowledge of the world get reflected in language? Um, and how do we think about, uh, I guess, the difficulty of getting to know things outside of ourselves in ways that aren't overdetermined by what we're bringing to that experience. Turning back to theology, you look at radical orthodoxy, a theological strain that emerged in the 1990s as an attempt to take on postmodernism and reintegrate it back into Christian theology. And while some interesting things do happen here, you also see some of the main figures carry on, often without realizing it, certain tensions and baggage that comes from their rehabilitation of figures like Dionysius and Derrida. And also note that in their engagement with continental philosophy, they have a sort of colonizer's mindset, which to some degree distorts both what they learn from philosophers as well as the theological results. So can you explain some of the issues that you see emerging here? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the issues with what radical orthodoxy is doing is um, a fundamental dishonesty about uh, what Christianity is that is very much bound up with their understanding of the kind of basic ontology of the world. So for radical orthodoxy, there very much is a pure essence of Christianity, which is found usually in some form in precisely a Neoplatonic articulation of uh, Christian theological ideas. Um, So there is this sort of abstract, pure form of Christianity that we can get to that is more or less embodied in various different stages of history. Um, And for radical orthodoxy, that pure form of Christianity is very much bound up um, also with Christendom. So I guess when you start to think that Christianity uh, has... Uh, is the closest uh, thing to the truth about the nature of reality, um, then it makes sense that you would see Christianity as uh, an institution that ought to tell everybody else how to think about the world. Christianity has understood how things should be, has understood how we should properly order ourselves in relation to the source of all value. Um, And so what you find in radical orthodoxy is this real nostalgia for um, a period in which Uh, Christendom existed, uh, in which uh, theology was the queen of the sciences. I think they have a bit of a tendency to sort of overestimate how uh, powerful theology really was in any given period. But this desire to go back to a time when theologians were really important because they really knew how things should be, how we should organise the world. Um, A nostalgia for a much more hierarchical understanding of society, um, obviously uh, implicitly implying, you know, that the people doing the radical orthodox theology would be high up the hierarchy of uh, human societies. Um, And really a sense that as um, we've entered into modernity, uh, something good and important has been lost. um, And that in order to uh, recover that, we need to go back to something more like the medieval ordering of society. And one of the things that's really problematic about that is Uh, a fundamental dishonesty about what they're doing. Uh, What you find in in radical orthodoxy is this tendency to claim that what they're doing is returning to this earlier, uh, more perfect stage of Christianity, whereas actually what's going on is some uh, actually quite innovative and creative re-readings of the Christian tradition in conversation with contemporary theology and philosophy. You know, I don't always agree with what they're doing, but I think what they're doing is new, it is creative. Um, There are some real moments of kind of imagination, but there's also just this um, denial that has often characterised Christian theology in general, this denial that anything new is happening, the sense that what's being done is just a re-articulation of what's eternally always been true about Christianity. So a failure to reckon with uh, actually what's going on in their own work, um, a failure to recognise with reckon with the ways in which the Christian tradition has always been internally fragmented. Uh, there have always been disagreements about how we should understand things. Um, and then uh, a version of uh, a Neoplatonic form of Christianity that really affirms this pure form of Christianity that then goes on to legitimate all kinds of uh, intellectual hubris, um, but also goes on to... Uh, legitimise all sorts of desires for reclaiming the the lost colonial power of the West and Christendom. Moving along, you bring in John Caputo and Catherine Keller, both of whom also do a lot of synthetic work between postmodern philosophy and Christian theology, but you find problems with them as well. So on the one hand, their approach to theology does seem to have a certain disruptive potential, since it dismantles any sort of certainty, especially, you know, regarding kind of political powers. But their emphasis on uncertainty, as well as local or personal rather than structural forms of resistance and change, um, 
is an issue that seems to come from their emphasis on the form of emancipation at the expense of the content of actual substantial emancipation. So can you unpack what you see going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think essentially what I think is going on in a lot a lot of the time in the work of Caputo and Keller is um, that there is a confusion between um, a movement in the direction of liberation um, and a movement that is responding to the ways that the structures of power and violence in society are changing. So I think really what's what's happening is that Caputo and Keller are wrestling, wrestling with the question of what happens to Christian theology um, as we in the West move from um, what Foucault calls control societies, uh, which are all about um, sort of tightly controlling and defining things, uh, people's lives, but also concepts um, from Fordist modes of production. Uh, so uh, to um, what Deleuze calls control society, where the forms of power and violence that are exercised by the state and by capital are much more fluid and adaptable and moving and changing. Um, so a move from control societies to, sorry, from disciplinary societies to control societies or from Fordism to post-Fordism. So as that happens, um, you start to see lots of things in the way that we organise societies changing. Uh, There is uh, increasingly um, greater um, movement and flexibility and adaptability that sometimes looks like freedom and to some extent is responding to the big emancipatory movements of the 1960s, um, particularly around... um, race and gender and decolonization. But what happens is that those desires for emancipation get complexly tangled up with the ways that um, capitalism responds to pressures on it and finds new forms of control, which are about containing those emancipatory moves. And so I think often um, it seems like uh, when you are in conversation with people whose Christian theology is shaped by uh, Fordist ways of thinking, um, shaped by uh, earlier stages of state violence and control. Um, what is really a shift from one form of control to another one can seem like uh, a movement towards emancipation, whereas it actually isn't. And I think that um, what Caputo and Keller both want to do is they want to say something like um, these rigid structures that pin people into certain categories of right and wrong and good and bad are problematic. And what we need is a more gentle, open, softer form of uh, relating to one another and Caputo at one point sort of talks about a relationship to faith where you know you won't hold anything so um deeply or tightly that you would be willing to go and uh, fly into a building for the sake of it um but I think what they miss is that that kind of flexibility and adaptability is actually exactly the the ways in which late capitalist forms of violence play out um this demand that everybody be constantly available to move to change their opinions in order to fit in in a new workplace or uh, adopt a new career Um, and so I think they they misrecognize something of what is going on in that shift um, from one period of capitalist history to another Um, and end up as a result of that failing to really confront the ways in which uh, things like racism and sexism are not being so much ended as transformed from one form into another Um, and I think you find in their work in various different ways um, remnants that are not fully dealt with um, of uh, not remnants uh, elements uh, structures of those forms of uh, racial genders class violence that they don't quite know how to think about. 
All right. So from here, you turn to the work of Slavoj Žižek as a resource for moving beyond some of these limitations that you've been outlining. So central to his project is the psychoanalytic theories of drive, desire, and failure, and their relationship to a broader ontology of the subject, something Caputo and Keller often refuse to develop in their commitment to a sort of radical uncertainty. So can you unpack the psychoanalytic theory here a bit and how Žižek's theory of subjectivity emerges from it? Yeah, so in terms of psychoanalysis, Zizek is mostly drawing on Lacan. Um, and for Lacan, uh, we as individual subjects come into being by a process of distinction from the world. So uh, the process of me coming to consciousness is inseparable from the process by which I realise I am distinct from the person who gave birth to me. I am distinct from the world around me. Um, but for Lacan, with that process of uh coming to consciousness as a process of separation and distinction comes a sense of loss. Um, As I come to realise that I am distinct from my primary caregivers, distinct from the world around me, uh, I have a sense that I have lost a sense of sort of primal unity with all things, uh, which is also bound up with a sense of, uh, you know, at one point I was one with all things and therefore I was perfectly in control. And as I come to consciousness as a subject who is distinct Um, with that comes a sense of uh, my own limitations, with that comes a sense of uh, my own inability to perfectly communicate what I want to other people, Um, and also with it comes a sense of uh, the ways in which I am not sovereign even over my own self. Um, So for Lacan, he talks about the mirror stage, which is the point at which a child is able to recognise in a mirror um, recognize themselves in a mirror. Um, and he says that at the point we're able to recognize ourselves in a mirror, which also implies that we're able to have a consciousness of ourselves as a, a distinct individual, that happens before we're able to, uh, we've, before we've fully developed our motor control. So we're able to conceive of ourselves as being a particular body, but it's a body which we haven't worked out how to use yet. You know, like our arms are still floppy, we can't pick things up when we want to. So there's this sense of being somewhat out of control in relation to ourselves, in relation to the world, that makes us long for this uh, fantasy that there was once a time when we were one with all things and everything was perfectly within our control because there was no distinction between us and the world around us. Um, And so for Zizek, uh, what he does is he takes that psychoanalytic account of the emergence of the individual subject and he says that, uh, he basically says, what kind of world would uh, produce uh, a subject that works in the way that this human subject does? Um, And so part of his argument is that the structure of the individual, which is that we come into being by a cut, which is experienced as a loss, Uh, which is always about an inability to perfectly grasp ourselves, perfectly control ourselves, um, emerges out of a world in which reality as such is incomplete, uh, precisely because it is multiple, um, in which um, there's always an element of chance and contingency uh, in the process of cause and effect. Um, And so for Zizek, uh, all of reality is structured in this way as a kind of incomplete circle, as a contradictory uh, internally antagonistic being um and um yeah so and so when we want when we think about how we relate to ourselves when we think about how we relate to our societies and um, when we think about how we relate to the physical world around us and the structures of the physical world around us we need to think about them for Zizek in terms of that inconsistency and incompleteness and failure 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. One element of Zizek's project that has at times baffled a number of people, both in the church and in more progressive circles, is his interest in Christian theology. Uh, And he believes it to have an emancipatory core that can be salvaged for his own radical politics. So can you unpack what it is in Christian theology that he finds so compelling? Yeah, so I mean, I actually think that in some ways this is the least interesting aspect of Zizek's thought because partly because what he's doing is essentially it's very close to what happens in Death of God theology in the 1960s. So um tied in with this psychoanalytic understanding of the subject for Zizek, um, we as human beings tend to believe that uh there is a big other. So there is something out there that guarantees the coherence and meaning of the world that we inhabit. Um that might be a kind of interpersonal level. You know, there's someone out there who will complete me. If I find this person and fall in love with them, I'll be happy. It often functions at the level of the political. Um, if we could just if we could just um, elect this leader, if we could just get rid of this group that's causing problems in our society, um, then things would come together and uh, be whole. And for Zizek, a lot of the Christian tradition is essentially about belief in the big other, that God uh, is the being who guarantees meaning, coherence, um, to the world. Um, but for Zizek, what what the death of Jesus really signifies is the death of that big other. And so for Zizek, if we take Christianity seriously, we can see Christianity as the religion in which God dies. There's no longer any divine being out there guaranteeing that our lives make sense, that the decisions that we make are correct. Um, and so we are thrown back um, on ourselves and told that we have to take responsibility for ourselves. We can't, we can no longer defer responsibility to uh, this outside uh, figure. Um, and so for Zizek, the this idea that the, the Christian community is held together by the Holy Spirit is essentially that claim. There is no God outside, uh, outside of us. Uh, we have to take responsibility and enact truth ourselves. Um, and for Zizek, that becomes... Uh, For Zizek, it's only in Christianity that we get to this emancipatory moment of the death of God. And so it's only by going through Christianity that we can get to the point of radically taking responsibility for our own desires, uh, for our own decisions, um, instead of deferring them to something outside of ourselves. Um, I think that that's problematic in lots of ways I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Yeah, I was just going to get to that. Um, You do find there are kind of a lot of productive elements in Zizek's thought here, um, but you feel that he goes too far in his interest in Christianity. And so while you seem to agree that there's an emancipatory element to Christianity that can be salvaged, 
Zizek at times fails to really commit to the dissentering implications of his theory, and he perhaps unwittingly ends up reifying the power structures he's trying to critique. So can you kind of unpack this, uh, what you see going on here? Yeah, and I mean, really, I think for me, the central problem with this idea that uh, only by going through Christianity can we get to the death of God. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the problems come. Um, so part of Zizek's claim is that um, the nature of reality as such is um, constructed in such a way that there are inconsistencies and antagonisms, that this this structure we find in our own lives of wanting wholeness but not finding it is grounded in the material world itself. Um, but when Zizek claims that it's only Christianity as a tradition that has gotten to the point of being able to take that seriously in terms of how we think about our own relationship to the world, um, I think he, uh, I think there are two problems with that. One is the way that it plays into uh, and draws on um, very old racist narratives um, about Christianity, religion and whiteness. Um, and the other problem is that it's just fundamentally inconsistent with his own understanding of the world. Um, so. To talk about the first one, uh, so Zizek is drawing on um, Hegel and a sort of broader tradition of which Hegel is a part, um, which um, I guess moves away from seeing uh, everything in the world as arranged in proximity to God in this great chain of being to towards seeing everything in the world um, arranged uh, in proximity to whiteness uh, as being more or less close to uh, Europeans taken to be the most developed and advanced civilization. Um, and uh, what tends to happen in terms of how people think about religion in that tradition is that religions all get arranged in terms of their proximity to uh, Christianity um, or secularism. So uh, by in the same sort of way that Christianity is seen as overcoming and therefore uh, becoming better than Judaism, secularism is seen as overcoming and therefore becoming better than whiter than Christianity. So um, you get this logic of supersession um, in the ways that religions are understood in relation to one another. Um, and I think that if you... So it's problematic because it's part of that 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 way of understanding religion, which is inextricable from the, the sort of white supremacist universalism of the Western philosophical tradition. Um, but it's also inconsistent with Zizek's own understanding of things. Um, on Zizek's understanding of things, if the material world as such is inconsistent, uh, that's the basic structure of every individual person, then any tradition that exists uh, will have its own internal contradictions and antagonisms that uh, will eventually, uh, if you follow them through and ruthlessly confront them, uh, have the potential to lead you to that point of the death of the big other, um, have you uh, have the potential to lead you to, to confront the incompleteness of reality as such. Um, and so um, really there isn't anything within the logic of his own thought that would mean that it's necessary that Christianity be the only place where you really get that. Um, and so really the reason I think that he ends up making that claim is much more to do with the ways in which he's formed by that that tradition of uh, white supremacism than it is about anything kind of internal to the logic of the arguments that he's making. To turn back to postmodern theology, you spend some time examining John Caputo and the French theologian Jean-Luc Marion and their analysis of the gift and givenness, which is another place they adopted themes from continental philosophy, um, particularly Heidegger and Derrida, for theological ends. So can you unpack the nature of the gift and how it works to upset or disestablish a certain order or economy? Yeah, so... 
The problem of the gift is uh, essentially the idea that um, if I'm giving you a gift that is different from exchange, so if I give you a gift, it, it it's meant to be uh, an act of gratuity uh, rather than a kind of calculation. If I give you this thing, then you'll give me something back. Um, and so uh, people like Marion um, and Derrida spend quite a while um, trying to work out like how it is possible to think about the gift. Because um, obviously when you... If I were to give someone a gift for their birthday, that generates often a certain sense of obligation. I've given them a birthday gift. They might feel that they need to give it back to me. Um, And so you get people trying to work out, is it possible to give a gift that is really a gift that isn't secretly a form of exchange? Um, And that starts to come into questions about how we think about the relationship um, between God and the world, because it it has some structural parallels to uh, the old Christian problem of the relationship between nature and grace. Um, And it also um, comes into play uh, in this continental philosophical problem of the relationship between the individual and the world. Can I be more than the sum of my parts? Do I have freedom? So it it tangles up a lot of issues around... uh, freedom, around consequences, uh, around exchange. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so to move back to Zizek again, he has a lot of sympathy for Derrida's notion of the gift, but more central to his own thought is violence. His emphasis on violence within his thought has led a number to accuse him of relishing in violent rhetoric without concern for the consequences or ramifications. And while he might bear some blame for this due to his tendency to write rather polemically or sloppily, depending on how you want to spin it, you do find his analysis of violence to be rather productive for thinking critically about oppression and resistance, particularly with the connections he draws around questions of the act and divine violence. So can you unpack his analysis here? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that Zizek's discussions of violence are a bit complicated, partly because he, partly because he's a contrarian. He likes saying things that sound shocking. So he likes to say that uh, Gandhi was more violent than Hitler, for example. Uh, so, uh, but he's also using violence in in various different kinds of ways. And one of the the ways that he's interested in violence, one of the things that sort of becomes, I guess, a sort of lazy. Uh, position within liberalism after the decline of of communism as a kind of live ideological option um, is this sense that violence is bad, that we should avoid violence at all costs, that we need to find ways of living non-violently with one another. Um, And one of the things that Zizek is interested in is thinking about the ways in which um, the violence of capitalism functions even, you know, you could have us within capitalism, no one necessarily needs to commit direct acts of interpersonal violence in order for terrible violence to be done. Um, and so one of the things that he's trying to do is say, it's not enough just to say we want a politics of nonviolence, because we have to think about the ways that the ordinary functioning of societies generates all kinds of violence. So even if I as an individual feel like I haven't done violence to anyone, I'm still part of Uh, a social order which relies very deeply on different kinds of violence both direct and indirect but there's also a sense for Zizek in which violence becomes uh, I've argued essentially a name for the gift um, because one of his questions his fundamental questions is how do we get out of capitalism what would it take to do something that would genuinely disrupt the existing order of things such that we might get out of capitalism and into uh, a different way of 
organizing the world um and so i think there's a structural relationship between that question is there something that we can do that genuinely would disrupt the feedback loops the exchanges the circulation of capital um and that yeah that that's structurally the same kind of question that Marianne and Derrida are asking in different ways with their discussion of the question of the gift, because really it's about, is there something that escapes economy? Uh, is there such a thing as freedom? Um, is there such a thing as the hope for a radical transformation of the existing order of things? So for all the value you find in Zizek's analysis, he also falls incredibly short when it comes to analyzing a number of particular instances of violent resistance to structures of power and oppression, either by ignoring or misreading certain resistance movements and often tossing various forms of what he would call pejoratively identity politics aside as just a distraction from the real issue, in his case, usually class struggle. So can you unpack your critique of Zizek here? Yeah, um, again, I think there's a couple of different things going on in the ways that Zizek is bad at thinking about what he calls um, identity politics. I think, um, so a lot of what he does when he critiques what he calls identity politics is that he's really critiquing a kind of liberal politics of inclusion. So um, on uh, in terms of sexuality, he wants to critique the form of queer politics that is about asking for queer people to be allowed institu- into the institution of marriage. Uh, he wants to critique the sort of um, black politics that is about how do we get more black people into positions of power. Um, so it, it's a critique of, of the kinds of politics that are about expanding the bounds of the existing order to include more people without fundamentally disrupting the basis of the functioning of the existing order of things um, but he is uh, often very lazy when he applies that kind of critique to actually existing uh, social movements um, he'll often write about things where he really clearly hasn't paid attention to what's actually going on um, in particular movements uh, so he he has a critique of the Black Lives Matter movement for example as being essentially just a sort of meaningless eruption of uh, frustration uh, completely ignoring the fact that what, one of the things that emerges out of the Black Lives Matter movement is quite a clear sense set of political demands and certain forms of political organizing um he also is just quite lazy in that he just doesn't do a lot of reading in those areas so he's very happy to dismiss uh identity politics around gender and sexuality and race but he doesn't really do the work of engaging with radical thinkers in those traditions even as actually some of the really exciting work in those traditions is being done by people who are engaging with Zizek uh so there's a kind of a a failure to pay pay attention to what's actually going on and in forms of political thought or action that are organized around um, gender sexuality and race rather than class Um, But I think there are also sort of bigger structural problems with his thinking, which is that he tends to divide reality as such into sort of three levels. So you have the individual, the the structure of the individual subject, um, and he locates uh, sexuality and desire as being at that level of the individual subject. So my desire to find uh, a sexual or romantic partner is about my relationship to my own incompleteness. Um, as an individual person um, then you have the social which is where class plays out um, that, that class struggle is essentially about society's attempt to resolve their internal contradictions um, and for Zizek when we're thinking about the social um, one of the things that happens is we displace 
antagonisms um, onto particular groups of people. So his favourite example here is anti-Semitism. And he says, what he's one of his arguments is that uh, when you have antagonisms uh, that are to do with the structure of capitalism, to do with the conflicts between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, between uh, capital and labour, um, those antagonisms get displaced onto the figure of the Jew. So you get a society saying, if only we could get rid of Jewish people, then these problems of conflict and poverty and uh, economic trouble would be gotten rid of. So he sees uh, anti-Semitism as a displacement of class struggle. Um, and then at the level of the ontological, you have the sort of basic incompleteness of the nature of the world. Um, the problem with that is that, again, partly because he's not engaging with radical uh, uh, work within uh the Marxist tradition uh, or other traditions. Um, he doesn't really think about the ways in which gender is not just about uh, individual uh, personal sexual fulfilment. Uh, gender is also about the way that we organise work and the way that we organise class. So he doesn't think about the ways that gender and sexuality can be to do with the social and can be to do with class. Um, and that he really doesn't have any place in his thinking for um race as such. Um, he can only see it as at best a displacement of class. And as I think um, various people have argued, uh, the, the role of anti-blackness in the European tradition, I think, is much more significant than that. The role of colonialism uh, is about a much more complex entanglement of uh, economic and libidinal investments and structurings of things. So he doesn't really have a significant place for race within his uh, framework, and I think that that's a real problem because he's so formed by um, and part of this European tradition that really relies on um, anti-blackness as its kind of animating force a lot of the time. Yeah. So to supplement Zizek and make for some of his shortcomings that you just discussed, you turn to ideas developed in the wake of Freud and Lacan around trauma particularly in the way it pushes a subject in the direction of a radical critique of their own situation. So while you do acknowledge a danger in trivializing trauma, you do think it can serve as a productive tweak in Zizekian thought. So can you unpack how trauma functions in your account and what it kind of allows you to uh, offer in terms of a supplement? Yeah, so um, I think the Lacanian language of trauma is a helpful way of refining a particular aspect of Zizek's understanding of violence. So one of the things that Zizek is trying to do in this question of uh, violence is to think about what, um, what, would it, what would it take to really disrupt the existing order of things and to create the possibility of a, an, yeah, a radical unsettling of uh, how the world is currently organised. Um, and uh, so on Lacan's understanding, trauma is... Uh, is not just something that can happen to us as the result of um, bad things that happen to us at various points in our life, but is also to some extent the condition of all subjects, because we all um, come into being as incomplete with a, a sort of um, internal contradictions that cannot be fully integrated into coherent stories about ourselves, into coherent understandings of ourselves. So the very ground of being a person is is trauma in this sense and an incompleteness uh, something that disrupts the possibility of um, narration um, and uh, 
understanding trauma in that way as this this moment of incompleteness and antagonism lets you think a bit more about what Zizek is trying to get at in his language of violence, which is how do we get at the structuring antagonisms of the existing order of thing, uh, things, uh, this moment of incompleteness, of inconsistency that can't be integrated into the existing order of things? And how do we push at that in a way which um, opens up the possibility of, of disruption, um, of transformation, of uh, the emergence of newness into the world. Yes. Yeah, so moving along with that, you develop this account of trauma in dialogue with developments in queer theory, which is interested in a similarly disruptive and destabilizing ontology of the subject and the potential to incorporate failure as positively constitutive of new forms of subjectivity and identity and in ways that have ramifications for thinking critically about things like race and white supremacy. So can you unpack the angle you develop here? Yeah, so um, I guess I'm particularly interested in the work of um, the queer theorist Lee Edelman um, and uh, the black scholar Jared Sexton, who are both engaging with Lacanian stuff and with Zizek in different kinds of ways. Um, And so um, one of the things that, that Edelman coins this idea of what he calls the symptomosexual. Um, and his argument is that um, one of the ways that society reproduces itself uh, is to invest in uh, invest in its own reproduction, invest in its own future. Um, and in order to tell itself a story about the goodness of the existing order of things, the value and importance of the world continuing as it is, uh, we invest in figures of the reproduction of this future as more of the same. Um, and so for Edelman, the figure of the child uh, in contemporary political discourse comes to do a lot of that work. When we say, think about the children, uh, when we worry about the innocence of children, a lot of the time what that is expressing is a worry about the ability of the existing order of things to continue reproducing. Um, and with that investment in this figure of the child comes a uh, uh, parallel um, investment in the figure of the uh, the enemy of that reproduction, um, which Edelman calls the symptomosexual, um, which he says often gets associated with queer people who particularly are seen as threatening in some way uh, children or ch- uh, the innocence of children. Um, and the symptomosexual represents uh, this this idea that's very important in Lacan that that in any the, the the way that human desire works means that um, our uh, deepest desires, our deepest motivations cannot be satisfied by any way of ordering the world that is about wholeness and is about harmony, that there is something deeply disruptive about uh, being a human person uh, and being honest about what we want. Um, and so instead of confronting the ways in which uh, what we fundamentally want, what fundamentally drives us is not satisfied by the visions of um, harmony and satisfaction that we are sold in the societies that we live. Uh, rather than dealing with that in ourselves, we just sort of project it outwards onto these figures of uh, threatening others. Um, and Edelman's response then um, is to sort of take the association of queer people with this figure of the symptom of sexuality and seeing people, queer people as a threat to children and to innocence and to sort of say yes that's that's what queerness should be uh, and if we want queerness to be truly liberatory we need to lean into the ways in which it is close to symptom of sexuality it has the potential for a radical disruption of the existing order by refusing the fantasies of wholeness and harmony that we're being sold by refusing to invest in the reproduction of the existing order of things um 
And then related to that, um, Jared Sexton's work is very interested in the ways in which human desire becomes invested in uh, certain racial orderings of the world and the ways in which those racial orderings of the world are bound up with the idea of sovereignty. Uh, so both the idea that we can be sovereign over ourselves, uh, we can be in control of ourselves, we can be rulers of ourselves and therefore also of, of sovereignty as it plays out elsewhere in the world, that we can be in control of the world, we can uh, make things harmonious. Um, and for Sexton, that that dream of sovereignty, that fantasy of sovereignty uh, that's so important to the foundation of the modern world is bound up with with anti-blackness, which uh, becomes this figure which is seen as uh, radically threatening, um, that uh, is a, as a figure of radical unsovereignty. Um, and Sexton's response to that is, again, to say, we need to give up on this fantasy of sovereignty uh, and think about what it would mean to, to adopt a position of unsovereignty to... Uh, to think from a place of unsovereignty, which is the position of blackness within uh, the Western world. In the final chapter of the book, you turn back to Dionysius, particularly his text, Mystical Theology, which you read in light of Lacan's Four Discourses in Seminar 17. And we could do an entire episode on this, but I want to focus in on the parallel you find between mysticism and the analyst discourse, both of which structure their subjects in broader communities around certain impossibilities where one circles around something that they can never quite get to. So on the surface, this sounds somewhat pessimistic, but I think it brings us back to the idea of failures and obstacles as being positively constitutive of both individual and communal identities. So can you unpack what you see going on here? And in closing, how constituting oneself around an impossibility may be a necessary part of growth and transformation? Yeah. Yeah, so... So Zizek draws on uh, Lacan's four discourses, which is basically an attempt to to describe four different ways of relating to the incompleteness, which Lacan sees as fundamentally constituting us as individuals. Um, And um, the... The first discourse is the master's discourse, which is um, all about believing that there is some figure of authority who is guaranteeing the meaning and stability of the universe that we inhabit. Uh, So I guess a a kind of traditional, more authoritarian form of government um, or uh, conservative forms of Christianity. Um, But this idea that there is this master who has the answers, who will make sure that things work out okay. Um, The second uh, discourse is the university discourse, which is where um, we deal with incompleteness by endlessly, just endlessly trying to produce knowledge uh, in order to kind of stave off confrontation with the fact that uh, there's a fundamental incompleteness to the existing order of things. So uh, uh, the contemporary university would be a great example of that, Uh, this injunctive to um, constantly be producing new work, uh, constantly be doing more things um, and what that that imperative to constantly produce things does is it means that we don't have the time or the energy to really confront the the contradictions at the heart of the the university um, to really sort of think about what it would mean to transform it and um, the third discourse is the discourse of the hysteric uh, which is where you uh, start to realize that something is wrong um, and you start to insist that things are not good as they are. Um, But there's still this assumption that uh, 
that you are making that case for someone else, that there is someone who should be fixing things and putting things right. And if you just keep yelling at that person uh, to tell them that things are not right, um, eventually they will come and and, and put things right. Um, and so you see these different um, things play out for like on in psychoanalysis. There are different ways of relating to um, the analyst. Um, and the fourth discourse, uh, which Lacan sees as the discourse that the analysis is trying to get people to, uh, is where you um, get to the point where you realise that the, the analyst is not going to tell you the truth of who you are and what you want, uh, because there is no truth of who you are and what you want. Or it's the point when you realise that um, you cannot defer responsibility for uh, your decisions about how you live your life onto a figure of the divine who's going to guarantee that there is meaning and purpose and everything's going to work out okay. Um, and so what happens is you come to the end of an, an analysis is you give up, you let go of this desire for something outside of you to guarantee meaning and purpose. And you start the difficult work of joining the community of analysts, of uh, being uh, with other people who also don't know what the answers are, who also are not fixed or whole or complete um, and you start to do the difficult work of trying to work out what it means to relate to one another um, not out of a desire for someone to come and fix all of your problems or tell you what the answer is um, or a, did someone to blame for the fact that you're not happy but as a bunch of incomplete imperfect people who are struggling to try and build things together and to love one another and to uh, love one another which for Zizek is very much about kind of ruthlessly confronting oneself and the others around us uh, without flinching away from uh, honesty about uh, their flaws, their imperfections, the ways in which both we and other people are uh, gross and horrifying uh, beings. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to kind of close things off. So as a final question, what are you working on now? Um, so I got interested in um, angels because, um, so Dionysius, who's a big part of the book, um, as, well, as well as uh, being one of the first people to sort of bring Christianity and Neoplatonism together, is also one of the first people to come up with a systematic angelology. Um, and Giorgio Agamben um, makes the argument that in the history of the Christian West, um, angelology and bureaucracy emerge in tandem with one another, that angelology is essentially a, a structure for letting us think about the relationship between sovereign power and the world. Angels manage the world on behalf of God and gather up worship instead of taxes. Um, and so uh, I have a project where I am trying to sort of follow that insight in the direction of thinking about the role that angels have played um, in classical Christian theology for helping us think about what it means to be human, about labour, about government, about embodiment. Um, I have a book project on sort of uh, going on uh, in the longer term, but in the shorter term, um, I am developing that by writing a, a chapter for um, an Oxford handbook on film and theology about angels and film, uh, which has been a fun chance to watch lots of really terrible films with angels in and think about the kind of political theological function that they're playing. Um, and I'm also working on a small side project um, about um, Mary Wollstonecraft and trying to think about um, the the ways in which she mobilises uh, the language of slavery in order to articulate the kind of freedom that she wants for women. Uh, so trying to think about some of the entanglements of uh, desire and property and uh, race in her work. Um, yeah, that all sounds fascinating. So, Marika Rose, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.